Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum. This year marks the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Our annual wreath-laying ceremony at the museum will be at 11 a.m. Due to our continued commitment to keep our visitors and staff safe, admission to the museum on September 11th is limited to individuals with reservations. As always, there is no charge for tickets on this solemn day. If you wish to send a donation or register, please visit nycfiremuseum.org. And now, let's start the show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, we begin in 1918 with a fire department within the fire department. Next is the Ritz Tower fire and explosion in 1932, and we end in 1948, where we hear about an Olympic firefighter. At various times in world, national, and New York City history, the ranks of the FDNY have been impacted by the need for men, and now women, to shift their service from the fire department to the military. Such was the case in 1918, when the United States was propelled into World War I, also called the War to End All Wars. In order to ensure that sufficient firefighting capability was maintained in the city, especially given the fear of a potential attack, the FDNY established an Auxiliary Volunteer Corps by Department Order 19, dated June 8, 1918. Commissioner Thomas Drennan appointed Eli Joseph as Special Deputy Commissioner to oversee the effort. Joseph, a wealthy scrap metal dealer, used his own money to fund the Corps, including purchasing all the necessary uniforms and firefighting equipment. The FDNY liaison for the Corps was Deputy Chief George Cuss. Under these men, an Auxiliary Corps District Chief was appointed for each of the five boroughs. Under them, the Corps had designated auxiliary captains, lieutenants, sergeants, and firefighters. Their uniforms consisted of khaki-colored shirts and pants, with a standard FDNY cap bearing a special badge, and a red cord in place of the usual black patent leather band. The breast badge of the auxiliary was a somewhat keystone-shaped device with a helmet at the top surmounted on a section of hose bearing the lettering NYFD and the words Volunteer Emergency Service. A plan was devised for the recruitment of volunteers. The highest priority was given to bring back retired members of the department. Next were men that served with the various volunteer fire departments that existed within the city, whether or not their volunteers' companies were still active. Fire buffs were actually found to be desirable, given their propensity for the fire service and their inherent knowledge of FDNY firefighting procedures. Over 3,700 men volunteered. Auxiliary members were assigned to companies throughout the city. Initially, except for within certain battalions, the men were not required to enter buildings on fire. Rather, they stretched hose, supplied fuel, and performed other exterior duties on the fire ground. But after they gained some experience, company officers began to put them to full fire duty. In the 50th, 51st, and 52nd battalions on Queens, the volunteers functioned as regular members at all fires right from the beginning. Back in the firehouses, volunteers participated in normal day-to-day -day chores and performed housewatch. Those found competent were tapped to fill in if there was a shortage of an apparatus chauffeur. The fighting in Europe came to an end on November 11, 1918, a day we now celebrate as Veterans Day. As the troops came home and returned to their civilian occupations, the FDNY Volunteer Auxiliary Corps was no longer needed. It was therefore terminated by Department Order 78, ordering the discharge of all members as of May 1st, 1919. 
The New York City Fire Museum is pleased to have several artifacts in its collection from the 1918 to 1919 FDNY Volunteer Auxiliary Corps, including photographs, certificates, badges, and a helmet front of one of the chiefs. Hello, everyone. I'm Ted Grant, the president of the New York City Fire Museum Board of Trustees. On behalf of the board, we thank you for listening to the Throwback FTNY podcast. Since 1870, our museum has sought to preserve, educate, and celebrate the heroic history of the men and women of the fire department in New York. In 1987, we found a permanent home in Lower Manhattan in the renovated 1904 Beaux Arts Firehouse that had served as the quarters of Engine 30. Inside, our impressive collection illustrates the evolution of the fire department from its origins through today. Our Fire Safety Learning Center is a hub for school children to learn about the importance of fire prevention. Our museum is also home to the first permanent memorial to the New York City Fire Department members lost on September 11, 2001. We hope that everyone who has come to visit the FDNY 343 Memorial since 2002 has been provided a place to reflect on the fire department's darkest day while coming face to face with our fallen heroes. Please stay up to date with us and learn more about our exhibitions, online catalog, and browse our museum shop online at nycfiremuseum.org. Again, thank you for listening, and now back to the episode. As celebrated in the song, Putting on the Ritz, the residential hotel of that name was just as well known. The Ritz Tower opened in 1926 at the corner of Park Avenue and East 57th Street in Midtown Manhattan. It was built by developer Arthur Brisbane and leased to the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain. At one point in time, it was owned by publisher William Randolph Hearst. It was the tallest structure north of 42nd Street at a height of 42 stories. The ground floor of the building had shops along both Park Avenue and 57th Street, in addition to the lobby entrance and other functions for the hotel and residents. The levels below grade had vaults, a grill room, kitchen, and assorted building-related spaces. But while the tower enjoyed a glorious reputation, from the FDNY perspective, it was part of a tragic day in its history. On August 1st, 1932, a building engineer smelled smoke in the basement, in the vicinity of the paint vault. The vault held not only paint, but also things like kerosene, gasoline, turpentine, lacquers, etc. And it was not ventilated to the outside. The vault was locked, but assuming there was a fire within, the engineer went to retrieve one of the building's fire hoses. On his return, the smoke was so heavy that he was pushed back. He went to get the chief engineer, and on his arrival, the thick smoke had made its way to the stairwell. The decision was made to call the fire department at 10.36 a.m. When four engine companies, two ladder companies, and a battalion chief arrived, there was nothing showing. In fact, they assumed it was a false alarm. One of the building employees approached the officer of engine company 8 and advised him of the fire in the paint vault in the subcellar. Hose lines were stretched, and a ladder was placed into an ash hoist shaft on the sidewalk to give the firefighters direct access to the subcellar. Cellar fires are never easy, and this one was proving to be extremely difficult. The heavy smoke, the difficulty in locating and accessing the paint vault, and the lack of ventilation to dispel smoke and heat from it were all adding up to trouble. At 10.56 a.m., Ladder Company 16 forced entry into the subcellar from the ash hoist shaft. And when they did, there was an explosion. 
At the time, there were approximately 30 firefighters in the subcellar and surrounding areas, still trying to locate the seat of the fire. Two firefighters in the ash hoist shaft were killed immediately, and a ball of flames erupted from the paint vault, engulfing the firefighters in the subcellar. Walls collapsed from the blast. The badly injured firefighters tried to help each other and attempt to make their escape from the hellish conditions. But then, a second explosion occurred, even stronger than the first. So strong that the helmet of a firefighter who was blown out of the ash hoist shaft and onto the street was found on a second-story awning. Windows of a jewelry store on the street level of the building were shattered, sending an estimated $100,000 of jewelry, close to $2 million in today's money, into the street. In the end, eight firefighters died as a result of their injuries sustained in what came to be known as the Ritz Tower Explosion. They are Lieutenant James Hartnett and Fireman Louis Hardina from Ladder 16, Lieutenant John Cosgrove, Fireman Thomas Finn and James Green from Engine 65, Fireman Edward Maloney and Peter Daly from Engine 39, and Fireman William Pratt from Ladder 7. A memorial plaque bearing their names and the date of the fire has been affixed to the building near the 57th Street service entrance where the firefighters gained access on the day of the fire. May their sacrifice never be forgotten. The New York City Fire Museum shop offers a wide selection of museum souvenirs and FDNY licensed products. To acknowledge the 20th anniversary of the tragic events of September 11, 2001 and the 343 members of the FDNY who gave their lives that day, we are offering several commemorative items, including a Maltese cross decal and lapel pin, a 9-11 Memorial Challenge coin, and a beautiful high-quality 343 t-shirt. Proceeds from all sales help fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate, and to remember the brave men and women of the FDNY, not just on September 11th, but every day. You can make purchases at the museum or online by visiting our website, www.nycfiremuseum.org forward slash shop. We all know that firefighting is a physically demanding profession. Many, if not most firefighters, stay in excellent condition, and it's common for them to be active in a variety of sports. But one of New York's bravest achieved a great deal of fame over half a century ago for that same vigor. Joseph Angyal Jr. was not only an FDNY firefighter, he was an accomplished athlete. Born in New York City in 1916, Angyal was appointed to the FDNY on March 1, 1938, being initially assigned to Engine Company 277. He later worked at Engines 8 and 320. His service record is peppered with unpaid leaves of absence, undoubtedly so he could participate in various sports competitions and events. He started off as a competitive track and cross-country runner in his youth. Consistently representing his teams in the winner's circle, this activity built up his legs and lungs, preparing him for his next challenge, the sport of sculling, or what some of us might call rowing. And he wasn't just good, he was outstanding. He was a 15-time national champion and had over 100 other wins. But Angyal's rowing and FDNY careers were interrupted by the Second World War. He was granted unlimited military leave from the department on August 20th, 1942. He enlisted in the Navy, becoming a U.S. Marine Corps fighter pilot, flying 95 combat missions in the Southwest Pacific. He returned to the department on December 7, 1945, and was assigned to Ladder 116. He remained in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve, attaining the rank of Major, and he happily got back on the water, balancing his careers as a firefighter, a pilot, and a sculler. On May 30, 1948, he competed in the Decoration Day Regatta, 
only to collapse after a half dozen strokes due to the effects of smoke inhalation he sustained at a working fire the night before. After working his way through the qualifying tryouts in the doubles category, Angyal and his partner, Arthur Gallagher, represented the United States at the 1948 Summer Olympics in London. Unfortunately, on the day of their race, the seas were uncooperative, making all the lanes harder for the teams to row in, except for the lane closest to the shore, which was the calmest. Not surprisingly, the team in lane number one, Great Britain, won the race. Unfortunately, the United States team in lane three did not medal. Home once again, Angyal resumed his three vocations. Sadly, on June 27, 1954, after taking off on a training mission from Floyd Benefield in Brooklyn, piloting a Marine Corps Grumman F-9F Cougar, Major Angyal's plane plummeted 22,000 feet out of the sky, crashing near Point Lookout, Long Island. At the time, Angyal was still on active duty with the FDNY in Engine Company 320. In his memory, a regatta sponsored by the New York Athletic Club was named in his honor. And in 1984, he was named to the New York Athletic Club Hall of Fame. To learn more about the FDNY's unique physical fitness challenge, the Chief Oreo Palmer Fitness Award, view Elite Company on the Streaming Now page of FDNY Pro. You could sign up to view this and other FDNY products at www.fdnypro.org. And now it's time for our Throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. The FDNY Bureau of Training is one of, if not the, most prestigious institution of firefighting education. It all began with a fire that occurred in the World Building when some of the occupants were trapped where the firefighters' ladders could not reach. In response, the FDNY invested in a new device to reach the heights of the city's new skyscrapers and formed a school of instruction to train firefighters in its use. In what year did that fire occur, and what is the name of the device that sparked the formation of what is now the Bureau of Training? The answer can be found in our last episode. You can listen to that and all our previous episodes by going to www.nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with the help of the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. If you leave a building on fire, close all doors as you exit. This will help contain the fire. If doors are left open, the flames and smoke can travel more quickly. We could all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.